Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. Many of you I was with yesterday, and it was truly a blessing to be together. And we've had a loss in our community this week as well. And so I feel like somehow God has prepared our hearts to be together. Um, so we are the loss that we experienced was someone also very close in our community who was a leader within our community, and he passed away on Monday. And so I was prepared to be with you and work through my grief by being here, and now you all are grieving as well. And so I think that God orchestrates these things for us, and I'm grateful that we can be in this tender place together. And I actually feel like the messages that God has had for us this weekend have been just right, creating space for us to be with God, with our grief and with our gratitude. And I know that process will continue for you. It's going to continue for us. And in fact, the scripture that I chose for this morning actually takes place in the middle of a time of great grief in the life of the disciples. And I'll, I'll read from it now as we begin. Um, it's in Mark 6, and it's a very familiar passage, by the way. It's a passage in which Jesus invites his disciples to come away with him and rest a while. But it's the context of the verse that is so meaningful to me because it's a moment in time in the life of the disciples when they had experienced a great grief and then when they had also uh, experienced great successes in their lives. And we see in this story, in the whole of Mark 6, we see sort of the spread of our lives as well, that in any given moment we can be living in the middle of great grief and also in the middle of many good things that are going on. So um, in Mark 6, starting with verse 30, this is a very familiar verse, says that the apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They had just come off a time when they had been out uh, healing the sick and preaching the gospel with power and casting out demons. And they had also had an experience of great loss, the death of John the Baptist, right before this passage. So Jesus says to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had great compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, you give something to them to eat. And they said, are we to go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after saying farewell to them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, 
it is I, do not be afraid. And then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. This is the word of God for us today. Thanks be to God. We thank you, Lord, for this picture of you this morning joining the disciples um, and being with them in a moment when life seemed like it was very difficult and when their little boat was being tossed about by the waves. We thank you for the invitation in this passage to your first disciples to come away with you and rest a while. And we pray that we will hear your invitation to us today and that you would lead us beyond places of being dangerously tired to places where we learn how to rest ourselves in you. Lead us and teach us as you led your first disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, when I was serving at a large church up in Illinois, um, there was a trip planned for some of us who were on staff. And we had a ministry in the Dominican Republic, and some of us as staff people were going to go down and see what was going on in the Dominican Republic. And I don't remember exactly how this happened. Now I actually wonder if this guy was even real. But there was one person who was not on our staff who joined us for this trip, a young pastor from Canada. I'm still not sure why he was with us. All of us were on staff in this one particular church, and this young guy came down from Canada. And he introduced himself to us as the director of loving. And he had a card and everything that he shared. And I thought that was very interesting because we didn't have one of those. <laughs> and I thought that perhaps we could use one. And then I wonder, well, he's a single guy. I wonder how he plays that particular card on the weekends. It kind of creeped me out just a little bit. But um, when we heard his name, his title, Director of Loving, those of us on our staff were a little bit dissatisfied with our own titles. We had the Director of Production and Programming. That seemed a little boring after Director of Loving. We had the person who was directing our trip. He was the Director of Extension Ministries. And, and then um, there was myself, and I was uh, working in the area of spiritual formation at the time. And so because his title was so riveting and so compelling to us, we all decided that we were going to change our titles for this trip. So the director of programming, production and programming became the director of hoopla. And he directed all of our partying efforts throughout this trip, and he did a mighty fine job. And then the director of extension ministries, we called him the director of ongoing directions, but it had to do with ice cream shops because Dominican Republic has great ice cream, and so we wanted to make sure we got directed to all the best ice cream in the Dominican Republic. So he was our director to the ice cream shops in the Dominican. And then I took the director of naps, and I want you to know that I was all over it. Every time I saw a yawn, I was on top of it, suggesting that perhaps it was nap time. And we had a great time with our titles. And when I got back home, as I was giving thought to that fun part of our trip, I thought, you know, maybe we as Christian people actually really do need a director of loving. Because the truth is that most of us are running around exhausted all the time. Not only do we have the stresses of life in our culture with our jobs and running our kids to soccer games and trying to keep our houses together and trying to keep our marriages together and trying to be connected with family and trying to stay on our technologies. I mean, life is stressful in our culture as it is. And then for many Christian people, we actually add on the work of the church as well. And so we're busy in church on top of everything else that we do. Many of us do ministry in the church and 
we take that very seriously, and thanks be to God for that, because this is the way we live out our Christian life, in community with each other. But the fact of the matter is also that we add another layer of busyness and activity um, when we're involved in a Christian community. And so what I could see around me in the church where I was on staff was that everybody around me was exhausted, including the people that were supposed to be leading others into a life-giving way of life. And there was a point at which I thought, there is something so wrong with this picture because all of us who are trying to tell other people how to live are actually twice as busy as they are. And I imagine that they look at us running here and there and they think, really, you want me to become a part of that? You know, that's the kind of life you want me to live? And then you have people who have um, just... uh, enough of a lack of integrity to want to say to people, don't do as I do, do as I say. You know, like, I want to teach you about a life-giving way of life, but I'm not living one myself. And so I felt like that was um, an issue that raised the possibility that maybe a director of NAPS would be a good idea for us as Christian people. So I'm going to speak to you today as the director of NAPS. I'm going to take that title back, and I'm going to talk to you today about Um, what it means in our lives to establish sane rhythms of work and rest that help us to come back from the brink of dangerous levels of exhaustion. You see, what I think was happening in that story in Scripture is that Jesus was just beginning to train his disciples about how to follow him. And he had given them new powers. He had given them powers to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And in fact, in the very beginning of Mark 6, that's exactly what they had been doing. They had been out doing really great things in Jesus' name. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing it in and through the gifts that he had given them. They were doing it um, in and through the mission that he had articulated and described for them. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And it was really exciting. So that first verse, Mark 6, 30, the first verse that I read, the disciples were gathered around Jesus wanting to tell him all that they had said and done. And I think it sounded something like this. Jesus, you cannot believe what's going on out there. I gave the altar call and everybody came forward. You can't believe what it's like out there. I actually spoke to a demon and the demon left. You cannot believe what's going on out there. I spoke to a sick person, and they were healed. This is the most exciting stuff I have ever been a part of. That's the conversation that was taking place in Mark 6, verse 30. Now, right in between all of that ministry success and this verse where Jesus is talking to them about coming away and resting for a while, they had a very tragic situation, just like what you all have experienced. John the Baptist had been placed in jail. And um, he had been beheaded very recently, the night before. And he, um, he was, you know, waiting in jail, and he was in jail for a really stupid reason, I think, because he had challenged the immorality of the king at the time. And so in this very bizarre uh, unfolding, uh, the king and his male colleagues one night were having a party, and he invited his young daughter to come and dance for them, and she pleased them with her dancing, and so he said, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And she was young and naive, and she didn't know what to ask for, so she went back to her mother, and her mother, who hated John the Baptist, said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter, and it was out of revenge. And so that's what the young woman did. She went back, and she asked her father for John the Baptist's head on a platter, and that is how John the Baptist lost his life. And so on this particular day, the disciples have swung between great successes and now great sorrow in their life. They had lost their beloved John the Baptist, who was a prophet and a teacher among them. You know how there are some people where you can't even imagine the world without them in it? 
Well, I think that's probably how they felt about John the Baptist. I bet they could not imagine the world without John the Baptist in it. And yet now they were living in a world without John the Baptist in it. And it's immediately following that grief and that loss and that violence that Jesus says to his disciples, come away with me and rest a while. Isn't that interesting? And I think what Jesus was saying there is that, you know what, as exciting as this thing called ministry is, as exciting as the Christian life is, as exciting as it is to go out there and do things in my name, even your passion can wear you out. And so right now, at the very beginning of your life with me, I am going to teach you how to establish sane rhythms of work and rest because even your passions can wear you out. Amen? That can happen. And so I think Jesus, as part of his very earliest discipleship with his disciples, his task was to teach them how to come back from the brink of dangerous levels of exhaustion and to teach them how to establish sane rhythms of work and rest. So I want to assure you today that as we talk about moving beyond this place of being dangerously tired by establishing sane rhythms of work and rest, we are doing exactly what Jesus did with his first disciples. And I find that to be very exciting, that today we are involved in a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples very early on in their life with him. So um, as we begin to look at this topic today, I wanted to tell you that I feel like there are at least two kinds of tired in the world. It's what I call good tired and dangerously tired. And good tired is something that we all move in, out, in and out of all the time. After a job well done, after you've given your very best to a task, maybe after a big long work week or after you've launched some new project or some new innovation, you've left it all in the field, you're worn out, but it's a good tired because you did it within your gifts and within your calling. And also, unless you are dangerously tired, you've, all, you've also done it within sane rhythms of work and rest. So now you know what to do with yourself. After you've poured it all out, after you've left it on the field, you have rhythms in your life that enable you to take a break and that enable you to come back to a place of refreshment and replenishment. But the problem is that most of us don't have those kinds of rhythms in place. And so most of us are moving very subtly to a place of being dangerously tired. So while good tired is a, is, is a dynamic that we all move in and out of, dangerous levels of exhaustion are actually what I like to think of as being more like the, uh, the, the atmospheric conditions that uh, precede a tornado. You know, there are normal conditions where clouds gather rain and then the rain falls and then there's blue skies again. That's a very normal atmospheric condition. But we kind of live where tornadoes take place and the atmospheric conditions that precede a tornado are a whole lot different than that, and you probably know this. The sky gets kind of green, it gets very dark, it gets very quiet, it's kind of eerie, and maybe you hear a siren going off and you realize, no, this is not normal, this is not normal weather, this is a tornado and I need to take cover. So dangerously tired is much more like the atmospheric conditions that precede a tornado. It's a sense that something is not quite right, and if I don't pay attention and take cover and do something different, that I might get myself into a dangerous situation. So I think it's very helpful for us to begin to be able to notice the difference between good tired and dangerously tired. Would you like to be able to tell the difference in those two? Good. Um, so to do this, if you're taking notes or you have something to write with or you can just imagine this, I'd like to describe a simple little continuum, all right? And on the left-hand side of the continuum is refreshed and replenished. And you have a place for taking notes, I see. So feel free to grab, to grab your, your pen and your bulletin and just draw a little continuum on your paper. So on the left-hand side is going to be refreshed and replenished. 
in the middle is going to be good tired. And on the very right-hand side is going to be dangerously tired. All right? So what I was just describing, a normal rhythm of human living, is that we come from a place of being refreshed and replenished. We leave it all on the field. We, do a, you know, we, we have a good work week. We have a new project. We get it launched. We get it done in our gifts and in our abilities. And we're good tired. But because we have sane rhythms of work and rest in our lives, then we come back to a place of replenishment, right? Because we have rhythms. And then we're ready to now tackle the world again. And so a healthy life is lived in this part of the continuum between refreshed and replenished and good tired. We're always moving back and forth in that part of the continuum. But many of us are not staying in this part of the continuum. Many of us are moving towards dangerously tired and don't even know it. And dangerous levels of exhaustion usually accumulate over years of time. And they accumulate without us knowing what's going on. And it's usually not because of one crisis, but it's usually because we haven't known how to attend to ourselves over a long period of time. And I want to tell you a little bit about what dangerously tired looks like so you can begin to think about whether or not this describes you. Um, dangerously tired is not just about being physically exhausted. It's often having to do with being emotionally exhausted, spiritually out of touch with the presence of God deep within, maybe mentally exhausted because we don't have know how to give our minds a break. And so dangerous levels of exhaustion seem to accumulate very gradually over time until finally we find ourselves in a burned out position where we're afraid that we cannot go on. Or we actually have some sort of health, health crisis that stops us in our tracks. Or maybe we have some sort of psychological crisis that stops us in our tracks because we did not know how to observe whether or not we were moving to a place of being dangerously exhausted. So let me tell you just a little bit about what it looks like to be moving towards being dangerously exhausted. And I'm going to give you some characteristics. You can actually list these um, on the right-hand side of your continuum if you would like. Uh, first of all, you might notice that there's a certain kind of compulsiveness to your work, that you work compulsively. You can't be still. You can't rest. Even when you're supposed to be off, um, you are still working and somehow connected. And, of course, this compulsive overworking is now aided by technology, which we talked about yesterday. Um, I don't know if you were alive, but I was alive when people were saying that the onset of computers was going to mean that we had four-day work weeks. Has anyone seen a four-day work week ever? No, I haven't. What we have instead is a seven-day work week, right, where we can be connected to our work seven days a week. And, in fact, we can actually have our work strapped to our bodies or carried around in our purses. When our emails are connected to our phones now and our phones are always with us, that means that we are always subject to our work intruding on other times um, of our lives when we should be attending to something else. So uh, one of the ways that you can actually notice whether or not you are overworking or always engaged with work is whether or not you allow that in your life, whether or not you've looked at your technologies to see, is it really good for me to have my, my work email attached to my phone, which is always with me? And what does that do to me in terms of my ability to unplug? What does it do to my ability to be present to my family? What does it do to my, my ability to be present to my own soul in God's presence? What is the impact on my life that I allow my work now to come into my life seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Some people even sleep with their phones. So that means that, that their work is actually, if, you know, that their work or people who are up in the middle of the night wanting to do work, they can actually access you at night which is, to me, a tragedy. So um, one of the ways you can look at whether or not you are compulsively overworking is to look at your connections with technology. 
um, and whether or not you're always checking and always connected with your work and allowing your work to cross the line into your personal life. When you're dangerously tired, you might also notice a certain kind of irritability that things that normally wouldn't bother you now put you over an edge. So a child spills milk or breaks something. The teenager has a fender bender with the family car. Uh, your spouse's irritating habit, something like that. That things that the driver that cuts you off in traffic. When you are your best self, when you're rested and not tired, you can just say, "Hey, you can have the road. I don't need it that badly. If you need it that badly, you can have it." Um, but you can you can actually take things in stride and let them go and release them because you have margin in your life. But when you are dangerously tired. You might even surprise yourself at the ways in which you react to things that normally you can take in your stride. So a, a kind of irritability that is not really consistent with your truest and best self. It might be that you experience uh, an inner kind of restlessness where you are always dreaming and thinking about some other kind of life where it's hard for you to love the life you're in, so you're always engaging in escapist behaviors and dreaming about vacation or dreaming about another kind of life. Now, of course, we all love our vacations, but when a person is doing well in life and they're moving in the, in the good part of the continuum, vacation actually makes them want to come back to their lives because they love their life, right? So vacation is a good thing, but the life that you're living is basically the life that you want to be living, and so you have energy for it. When we're dangerously tired, we can actually begin to be quite numb, where we can't feel anything, good or bad. Um, and while it might seem like it's a good thing to be unhampered by the emotions that bog other people down, the truth is that we are not living the full range of our human emotion the way that God created us uh, to live our lives. And so emotional numbness is one of the ways that we keep ourselves from the inconvenience of feeling emotions that we would rather not feel or emotions that we don't know how to deal with. So there's a verse in the Bible that says, be angry and not sin, right? You remember that verse? Well, let me tell you, it takes a whole lot more energy to be angry and not sin than to just numb yourself out, right? Um, what about sadness? You know, many of us have had hard things happen in our lives, particularly in our family lives and things like that, places of emptiness in our family life. And because no one ever taught us how to deal with those things and how to walk through our emotions and work through our emotions, instead we just repress them and suppress them. And sometimes there's this fear, you know, if I were to really let myself feel my sadness about that, or my anger, or my rage, I might never be functional again. You know, I might start crying and never stop. I might never be able to show up again and do my job. I think we have fears about emotions overwhelming us and overcoming us. And so, because we don't have the energy to really face them and work through them, uh, we go to a place of emotional numbness instead. But one of the reasons why this results in emotional, or why it results in dangerously tired, is because repressing and suppressing emotion actually takes energy as well, right? It's sort of like pressing a beach ball down underneath the water. You can do it. It can be done. You can press a beach ball under the water, but you're using energy to do it. You're using energy and focus to do it. So the minute you're distracted, the minute you get tired of it, the minute somebody calls your name and you forget what you're doing, the beach ball rises up to the top of the surface again, right? Because it's still full of air underneath there. And it's the same with our emotions. We can do it for a while. We can repress our emotions for a while, but it becomes an actual source of exhaustion because we are using our limited energies to actually suppress and repress the emotions of our lives. We don't even realize that it's a slow leak on our energies. So emotional numbness is a characteristic of being dangerously tired. 
It could be that we have an inability to rest. And I think this is another dirty little secret that people don't talk about very much. And that is that many of us struggle with sleep and resting. And in fact, a vicious cycle can be created where we don't sleep very well naturally. And so we're using caffeine all the way throughout the day to bring us energy. But then by the time we get to the evening, it's time to rest. We're so overstimulated with caffeine that we can't rest. And so then, you know, we create this vicious cycle within ourselves. So um, some people need sleep therapy. You ever heard of that? Um, it is a real discipline, actually. But many of us actually need to think about how we uh, deal with issues of rest and sleep. We need to know and discern whether or not we're getting enough sleep. Are you getting enough sleep? Uh, when you do sleep, is it restful or is it interrupted? Is there a continuous loop of anxiety and concern that keeps you awake at night? Um, and then to really pay attention to your bedtime rituals and what you can do in your life to be sure. Do you, maybe you need to cut out caffeine altogether. Maybe you need to turn the television off earlier in the evening instead, and instead do a nighttime prayer ritual. Um, maybe you need something different. But um, to not get enough sleep regularly is going to move you to that place of being dangerously tired. It could be that underneath the surface of your life there are feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness that you really don't know how to change your life. You know there's something not quite right about how you're living your life, but you feel powerless to change it. You feel like a victim in your very own life. Like, I, like there's nothing I can do. I'm stuck here and there's nothing I can do to change my life. That is also a symptom of being dangerously tired because when we're rested, there's much more of a sense that I can take it on. You know, that there's a chance that I can change my life, that I do have agency in my life, that I have energy and I have power and I can do something about my life. But when we're dangerously tired and maybe even depressed, there's this sense that I don't have, I don't have options and I'm a victim in my very own life. It could be that there's a slippage in our spiritual practices. When we're dangerously tired, it feels like even, even engaging in scripture reading or prayer or solitude and silence, even that feels like it's going to take too much from me. And so I'm just going to escape by watching mindless television, you know, which is never a good idea. So um, there are many, many characteristics of being dangerously tired, but these are just a few. And uh, unless we really began to understand what it looks like to be dangerously tired and we're able to name the fact that that is perhaps what's going on in our lives, we, I don't think we'll have enough desire and perhaps even enough desperation to want to change the way we're doing our lives so that we can be rested in God's presence and so that we can be rested for what it is that God has us to do. When unhealed chronic fatigue reaches a certain point, the very things that we know should be life-giving are things that begin to fall by the way. Um, things like taking care of our bodies, things like our spiritual practices, things like maintaining relationships that are life-giving for us, things like being involved in a, in a Christian community, in a church community. Even though we know those things are good for us, we don't have the energy for them, and so they begin to slip and to fall by the way. And so um, this kind of unhealed chronic fatigue, being dangerously tired, which is what I like to call it, is something that we will not just press through with our New Year's resolutions, you know, by bringing just a lot of human effort to it. In fact, I feel that pressing through dangerous levels of exhaustion to a place where we can establish rhythms of work and rest actually have to do with feeling our desire for a way of life that works. So I'm hoping that as we're sitting here today, you're maybe resonating a little bit. You're willing to admit that maybe there are dangerous levels of exhaustion in your own life, but that you're also getting a glimpse of hope 
you know, and that it's possible for us to take hold of our lives in God and to establish rhythms of work and rest that actually keep us alive and well for the long haul of our lives with God. And I think this is exactly what Jesus understood. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to deal with when he was speaking with his disciples, when he was saying to them, come away with me and rest a while. I think he was saying, um, you do have choice. You do have control in your life. And you can establish rhythms of work and rest that will sustain you and that will also give you a great joy in living your life in my presence. So I would like today to suggest three spiritual practices that I think are connected with um, this issue of establishing rhythms of work and rest. Because when our, when our way of life is leading us towards being dangerously tired, we might feel like our way of life is heroic. You know, in our culture, sometimes these people that don't need very much sleep and they kill themselves with their work, you know, they work 10 to 12 hours a day, big, long work weeks. I mean, certainly that gets rewarded at work, right? Your boss loves it when you over-function, right? When you're addicted to your work, when there are no boundaries around your work, your boss loves that because that means he or she is getting more out of you. And it's culturally upheld as being a high value. And so it might seem heroic to some people, but when that happens, there is a frenetic quality to our work that lacks true effectiveness because we've lost the ability to be present to God, to be present to other people, and to discern what is really needed in our situation. And so the result of dangerous levels of exhaustion can be a kind of sloppy desperation in our lives. We might think we're serving other people really well, but the truth is that when we are dangerously tired, we can actually fall into a kind of sloppy desperation. This is a mental and spiritual lethargy that prevents us from the quality of presence that delivers real insight and real presence in the world. So here's an interesting example. Charles, a gifted physician, he illustrates this point in Wayne Mueller's book on Sabbath keeping. He says, I discovered in medical school that if I saw a patient when I was tired and overworked, I would order a lot of tests. I was so exhausted, I couldn't tell exactly what was going on, so I got in the habit of ordering a battery of tests, hoping that they would tell me what I was missing. But when I was rested, when I was rested, if I had had the opportunity to get some sleep or to go for a quiet walk, when I saw the next patient, I could rely on my intuition and my experience to give me a pretty accurate reading of what was happening. When I could take time to listen and be present with them and their illness because I was rested, I was almost always right. Interesting, huh? When we're depleted, we become overly reliant on voices outside of ourselves to understand and to tell us what's really going on. We react to symptoms rather than seeking to understand and respond to underlying causes. We rely on other people's advice and models. We rely on consultants. We rely on all sorts of others and their voices because we're not able to listen to the voice of God deep within. Wayne Mueller says that we are blessed by inner rhythms that tell us where we are and where we are going. No matter then our 50 and 60 hour work weeks, the refusing to stop for lunch, the bypassing sleep and working deep into the darkness, if we stop, if we return to rest, our natural state reasserts itself. Our natural wisdom and balance comes to our aid and we can find our way to what is good and necessary and true. So what I want to offer today is three simple rhythms that are good and necessary and true for us to live as our best selves in God. 
Uh, there are three ways of establishing rhythms of work and rest in our lives that help us uh, to live our lives well. The first is the one that we took time with yesterday. Yesterday, we took a period of five hours, nine to two. Many of you were there. And we talked about the importance of solitude and silence. And we talked about solitude and silence as being a place where we rest ourselves in God. And we talked, we spent most of our time actually talking about cultivating solitude as a place of rest in God. Because when we are as busy as we are and as overstimulated as we are in our culture, uh, we need solitude to, first of all, be a place of rest in God, not a place where we're busy trying to study our Bibles and, and grasp truth, not a place where we're praying through, praying around the world in 30 days or less, not a place where we are reading all the Christian self-help books, but we need to cultivate solitude as a place of daily rest in God. And I want to talk to you about the real concrete time frames of your life. I want to talk about daily, weekly, and then at least annually, but probably more like monthly or quarterly, and then taking your vacations annually. So the first thing I'd like you to think about is your daily rhythm. And is there a place where you could carve out even just 10 minutes to be with God openly and receptively and to rest yourself in God? Solitude, by definition, is that place where we give our full and undivided attention to God. When we couple silence with it, it becomes a place where we give up our own controlling and grasping mechanisms, and we're just open and receptive before God. We're not trying to make anything happen. We're not trying to fix ourselves. We're not trying to gain a lot of new information. We're not trying to tell God what to do. We're not even working really hard to try to put things into words. When we practice solitude and silence daily, we begin to cultivate a regular rhythm of resting in God daily. So in addition to whatever sleep you need, you need to pay attention to your body. So I suggest that you look at your daily rhythms of rest and sleep and, and look and see whether or not you're getting enough sleep. That's, that's the first thing. That's just basic. That's just basic. Uh, so you want to make sure you're getting enough sleep. And then secondly, that's rest for your body. But secondly, you need rest for your soul every day, especially with the pace of life that many of us lead. So to look at your daily existence and to say, is there any place in my daily life where I could even find 10 minutes to sit openly and receptively in God's presence? And in the book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, I talk about my own journey with solitude and silence and how it was helpful for me to have a spiritual director who even taught me what to do in those 10 minutes. So she taught me how to sit with my feet flat on the floor and my back straight and my hands open. She taught me how to pay attention to my breathing and to allow my breathing to release stress and tension. And then to just sit openly in God's presence for 10 minutes. And yes, I still did other things in my devotional life. I still read my Bible. I still prayed with words. I still read spiritual books. But to incorporate 10 minutes of openness and receptivity. Of course, at first it was challenging because I wasn't used to sitting still because I'm basically an activist. I love to get things done. Um, but even beginning to sit for, for 10 minutes in solitude and silence just openly and receptively before the Lord became a place of deep rest for my soul. And it was a place where even if my mind wanted to work really hard on figuring things out, I would say to my mind, thank you very much. You serve me really well, but right now you get to rest because I am just sitting openly and receptively in God's presence, and I'm waiting for God to bring what is most needed in my life. And as it relates to our emotional life in particular, solitude and silence can be a place where we actually allow the emotions to come that need to come. 
and we can sit with God with our anger and with our grief, and God begins to touch us in that place, and then rather than using our energy to repress and to suppress our emotions, instead we allow our, our emotions to come into consciousness, and then we allow God to bring the comfort. We allow God to help us work through our anger. We allow God to help us to notice the sources of our resentment so that maybe we can do something proactive about it. Maybe God will actually give us discernment about how we can deal with the sources of our resentment and our angers and what is the next step for me spiritually speaking so solitude practiced very simply as a time of openness and receptiveness to God it eventually offers us offers us a quietness and a calmness within our souls there's a resting because we're not suppressing emotion anymore we're actually being with it in God's presence um, there's at least one place in our lives where we can be with what is without trying to fix it there's at least one place in our lives where we're not on for anyone, but we get to just be with God just as we are, and that is very restful indeed. And over time, here's what's going to happen. At first, 10 minutes is going to seem long, and it's going to seem like it's just more than you can handle, but eventually you're going to start to love it so much that eventually it'll be 20 minutes, and then it'll be a half an hour, you know, and then some sometimes on the Sabbath, maybe you'll... You'll, you know, take an hour or two, and you'll be able to just be with God in silence and rest your soul in God's presence. So that's your daily rhythm, paying attention to your sleep and incorporating at least 10 minutes a day somewhere that works for you. There's no, there's no magic time. It might be mornings. It might be later at night if you're a night owl. It could be your lunch hour at work because guess what? Legally, you're supposed to get a lunch hour, right? Whether you work through the lunch hour is your problem, but legally, you get a lunch hour. So you could sometimes take your lunch and, you know, go out and sit in a park and be quiet for 20 minutes. How wonderful would that be? You know, use your time that's being given to you. Sometimes the fact that we can't find a time is not anybody else's fault. It's ours. So that's, that's your daily rhythm. Then the next rhythm I want to suggest to you, and I know that you've already had some teaching on this in your, in your life together and community here, and that is to establish a weekly rhythm of Sabbath keeping. So that rhythm is just rooted in our Christian history. It's rooted in scripture. It's rooted in the person of God himself. God worked six days and then he rested. And then he rested on the seventh. So the simple question is, why do you think you're better than God? Why do you think that you can work seven days a week when God himself worked six days a week and then rested on the seventh? The weekly practice of Sabbath keeping is one of God's sweetest and greatest gifts to us. He gives it to us out of love. He gives it to us because he knows how he created us and he knows that we're human and he knows that we were never intended to work 24-7. He gives us the Sabbath for three purposes, for rest, for worship, and for delight. So we've already worshiped today, right? We're here, we're worshiping. We've lifted our hearts and our hands to God. So you've done that part of Sabbath keeping today. Now, if you were to go home and take the rest of the day to nap, to go for a walk, to eat beautiful food, <clears throat> to make love in the afternoon, um, to enjoy doing an activity that you just love because you love it. If you were to take the rest of the day to do that, to receive God good, God's good gifts for you in your ordinary life, you would be delighting and you would be resting. How many of you feel like maybe you could go home and take a nap this afternoon? Uh, and you learned it at church, right? You learned it because you came here, because you're a part of this community's life. That is what God wants to give us every week. Every week, a chance to worship, to rest ourselves in God, and to delight in God's good gifts to us. Now, I live a very big and very stressful life, I will admit it. 
but I am religious about my Sabbath keeping, pardon the pun. Um, I, uh, I'm preaching here with you today. I, I am willing to be a part of people's community lives to teach these things. But my husband's with me today, and we'll take the rest of the day off, and uh, we're going to enjoy our Sabbath. And I'll probably take it slow tomorrow as well because I won't have got, gotten the full 24 hours. But I'm telling you, sometimes life seems so busy and so full that I think I can't manage it. But I'll say to myself, Sabbath is coming. Sabbath is coming. And so I can make it. You know, there is a finish line out there for me. Sometimes I am so overwhelmed with my life that I'll say, I just, I just want to walk out of this. It's just too hard. And then somewhere along the way in my Sabbath keeping, um, I went into it feeling like I couldn't possibly live my life. And then somewhere along the way at the 12-hour mark or the 15-hour mark or something like that, I begin to, to really love my life again. And I begin to think, I can face my life. I'm rested. I can go back. I can go back into my life and give it my best. And Sabbath gives me the ability to go back into my life and to give it my best. So that's the weekly rhythm, friends. We're getting very practical here, daily, weekly. And then I would like for you to think about something like monthly or quarterly when you might have an extended retreat. And that's the third practice that I want to mention to you, and that is the practice of retreat. And that is actually what I think Jesus was inviting his disciples to in Mark 6. He was saying, you guys have poured it out. We have given this thing our all. We have just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. It's enough. Now, let's come away and rest a while. This is not just your 10 minutes in solitude. This is coming away and resting for a while. And so Dallas Willard, again, who's one of my favorite authors, he says that if you don't come apart for a while, you will come apart after a while. <laughs> and so I'm encouraging you today to think about maybe once a month or once a quarter taking a bit of an extended time. Maybe um, a morning, maybe a 9 to 4 day, that would be ideal, or 24 hours. Yesterday, we did that as a community. This community did that yesterday. Yesterday, we retreated. Yesterday, we took extended time, five hours, to give attention to our souls and to be with God and to allow God to minister to us. We did that together as a community. It's, it's thrilling. And now I want to say to you, carry it forward. Carry the practice of retreat, which Jesus taught his disciples. Carry it forward and see if there's any way that you could incorporate into your life a monthly or a quarterly time away, maybe a 9 to 4 time or a 24-hour period of time. I particularly love 24 hours because you can start the night before and get some good rest before you wake up in God's presence the next day. Um, but I encourage people to think about a monthly or a quarterly rhythm of a little bit more of an extended period of retreat as a way to rest yourself in God um, even more deeply. I will say that resting many times is a function of time because it takes time to pull away. It takes time for you to let go internally of all that you're normally attached to and clinging to and grasping at. And then it takes time for the inner chaos to start to settle. It takes time to get a nap or to get a good night's sleep so that you can be rested for what God wants to say to you. And then it takes time to get quiet enough on the inside so that you can actually distinguish God's voice from all the other voices in your life. But um, retreat is simply an extended period of time in God's presence where you have your daily solitude. Retreat is actually an extended period of time in solitude. Um, Emily Griffin calls it a generous investment in our friendship with God. When was the last time you were generous with God, with yourself? Do you just give him 10 minutes here and there if nothing else is interrupting you? Or when was the last time where you said to God, I want to be with you, I want to give you my whole self, and I want to be generous with you with my time. I want to be generous with you with my focus. I want to turn off my phone and be only available to you 
I want to be generous in this friendship so that we can cultivate it together. And retreat time, the practice of a monthly or a quarterly retreat is what um, gives us, you know, that extended period of time to be generous and to really invest in our friendship with God. And then, of course, take your vacation. Take all your vacation. You know, do not be connected on your vacation. Unplug completely. Even though you can be plugged in, that doesn't mean you should be. So then there's this annual rhythm of your vacation time as it's been given to you. And so take it. Take it all and receive it as a part of your spiritual rhythms of work and rest in your life. And friends, I want to really encourage you that while this does, for some of you, feel like it's a little bit out of reach, I don't believe that it is, but I think it needs to come from you getting in touch with your desire and your own sense of desperation for a life that really works for you and that works for you in God. So allow yourself to feel your desire. Don't try to do it all at once. Maybe just try one thing. Maybe just try one of these practices and see what difference it makes. Because once you try one thing and you see what difference it makes, you'll think, well, I think I'm going to go the whole way because this is really good. And it actually makes me, uh, helps me to be the person that God wants me to be for him and for others. Um, so I want to encourage you that it is possible for us as human beings to establish sane rhythms of work and rest. And that when we do that, we are in good company. We are in the company of Jesus' first disciples who were doing really good things for God and yet still needed to learn how to establish sane rhythms of work and rest. And I pray that God will give you the wisdom to do so. And so I'd like to, to lead you into a restful moment as we close in prayer today. So I want to encourage you to put your things away. Um, I want to teach you the uh, prayer posture that I just mentioned with your feet flat on the floor your back straight in your chair. Feels good to your body when you get into a good posture. Your body actually feels better. So back straight, not contorted. Uh, you still want to be comfortable, but uh, open and alert. This position in our bodies actually gives us a way of saying to God with our whole bodies, I'm open to you. I'm willing to receive what you have to give. Go ahead and take a deep breath as a way of coming in touch with the Spirit of God deep within and releasing tension and opening up the inner space. If it feels comfortable to you, you can actually open your hands on your lap as a way of expressing your willingness to receive rest from God. That verse, be still and know that I am God, is actually translated, um, cease striving, let go of your grip. So when you open your hands, you're actually letting go of your grip, the things that you usually cling to so tightly, so that you can be open to what God wants to give. And today, I think God wants to give us rest. And so let's enter into this restful moment together. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness. Quiet my fretfulness. Curb my aimlessness. Relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. Oh Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly. From the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip. Open your hands and feel what it feels like to let go of your tight grip. 
that I may be open to receiving what you give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather me now to be with you and to rest with you as you are with me. Lead me into the rhythms that will give me life. Amen.